I'd like to welcome everyone tonight. My name is Allison Saylor. I'm on the Thai Colorado Board, and I'm the chair of our first ever Leadership Day that's going to be June 23rd this year up at our Copper Mountain Conference as part of the conference. Um, we're very lucky to have obtained Pam Moran, who, Pam Moran, who is a um, superintendent in Virginia, and Ian Sokol, who works for Ms., um, Michigan State University, to be our keynotes for the day. And they're going to give us a sample of what we might hear that day. And they have some very interesting ideas about how our schools should be managed. So I'm going to turn it over to them. And I'm happy to have you all. Any questions that you want to ask, please put in the chat. Or, and if they don't see them, I'll try and pass them on to Pam and Ian. So welcome, Pam and Ian. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, um, welcome, everybody. I'm Iris Opal. And Pam Moran is also on. I'm in, I'm in Western Michigan, out on the Lake Michigan shoreline, uh, more or less in, in finally sunny weather. Pam is in thunderstorms and tornado watches in central Virginia and Charlottesville. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight, and we want to make this as much a group conversation as you guys want to make it, so um, please feel free to interrupt and comment and suggest. And, talk both in the chat room and raise your hand and say you want to speak. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the conflict between and, and sort of a shift in, in concept and leadership, the conflict between scientifically managed schools and what we call community-driven schools. And I'll do this as a quick introduction in saying that in our minds and our observations, what we've seen is um, is we're at a moment in history where communication systems and information systems have changed so radically that culture has changed. But we do, don't think that what we're moving to is something unknown. We think we're moving to something um, that the world knew very well up until the last couple of hundred years. That is, we tend to think that the what some might call the Gutenberg era some might call the Reformation era, certainly we could call it the Industrial Revolution era, um, created forms of communication and forms of education and forms of leadership in communities unlike those from the period before and we think the period after. Uh, we, the scientific management systems that grew up with the Gutenberg era the Industrial Revolution era were designed to operate sort of separate from the way human communities had operated um, in the past. And leadership was developed in different ways. And we, we're living with that now, even though we're in a period now where the rules have changed back, where information is not controlled by um, by a system where people can gather however they want to in, in whatever way is where uh, print is just one of the many forms in which information is transferred uh, and in which people have power systems have started to shift because the communications systems have shifted. So from there, we're sort of off into how we see schools operate. And I'll turn it over to Pam and get her first thoughts. Well, I think that one of the, the pieces that I, I would like to start with is a story. And I think it's a story of uh, how the world is changing for us 
in terms of the way that we communicate and operate as leaders. And it goes to a, a situation that occurred recently where one of the, the staff members that I work with is a senior staff member went out to a school to work with a group of parents around something that, that typically we would be sharing with a, a parent uh, teacher organization about a possible uh, change in the way that, that we were working with that school. And as he presented and talked and shared data and, and talked about this particular uh, event that, that we were looking towards, all of a sudden he realized that one of the folks in the, the group, one of the parents, was texting on her, on her uh, mobile device. Pretty soon she started asking questions. Turns out that she was texting with her husband who happened to be an expert in this area and it turned the meeting from something that was a presentation by senior staff to a group of parents into a very different kind of conversation. I think that, that one of the things that strikes me in this day and age is that no matter where we are, whether we're a principal in a school, whether we're a superintendent, whether we're an uh, assistant superintendent or a teacher in a classroom, that those traditional kinds of hierarchies that we're used to, uh, sort of the factory school model, is getting taken apart around us. And that the reality is that we're still using a really old system of uh, industrial uh, uh, approaches to, to teaching and learning, to running schools, to running school districts that at some level is not working for us at this point in time and maybe never did work, but particularly in this day and age is changing uh, uh, radically and we are not responding to that. We are not really looking at our world through the lens that we are again more of a face-to-face -face community and are being made that way to some extent by the way the virtual uh, world is developing. One of the things that we think is important to note is, is the role technology has played in this, and, and Pam's story is a perfect example of it. For right now, for example, so Pam and I can see each other, even though we're in different places and Illuminate doesn't have that sort of shared video feature, we are on a Skype call at the same time, and in a quarter of my, corner of our screens we can see each other while we're talking to you. One of the things that technology does is it has actually, despite the fact that you hear constant complaints from certain people about the fact that it, it separates people from the real world, it really connects people in a way we haven't had an opportunity to connect in a long time. For example, if this was 300 years ago, before the Industrial Revolution um, reshaped communities and created sort of the anonymity of cities, then I would have spent my whole life with my family, my parents, my siblings, my child. Um, they would have been part of my daily life, um, hour by hour, minute by minute. I would have known everything that was going on. During the last couple of hundred years, that became very difficult. People ended up even on different continents, um, you know, in different places and, and very scattered and we did not have um, access to them on a constant level. But what technology of the present day has given us is that old world back in a significant way. So that I know where my son is all the time by watching Foursquare and Twitter. Um, even though he lives in New York and I'm here, I 
can communicate with my mother who's in Florida every day and my siblings who are in New York and Texas um, and cousins around the world and Pam who's in Virginia and I see people and touch them and know what's going on just like sort of in, in, the, in the real old days. Um, that has recreated this sort of ancient form of of sort of natural leadership in which leaders, if you watch social networks, um, arise via their demonstrated competence and ability to contribute to a community. If you watch who becomes respected voices in a place like Twitter in, in you know, sort of professional learning communities, it is not based on credentials. It's not based on where you went to college anymore. It's not based on who publishes your books. It's based on whether you can give um, effective information to people that they can use. That's a very old model uh, of leadership, and that's one of the things we're, we're starting to talk about here. Well, and I would add to that, Ira, that, that one of the things that really worries me is that we live in a, a day and age where we are basing a lot of the work, in fact, almost all of the work we do on what um, one of the folks that I followed back in the 80s uh, out of the business world, interestingly, uh, W. Edwards Deming, who talked about that, that organizations that base their progress on numbers alone, visible numbers alone, aren't going to be able to make the kinds of process improvements that really lead to people that work in the organization feeling like that they are owners of the work, people feeling like that they're part of a, of a collaborative team, that they're all in it together as a community versus seeing themselves in silos. And most importantly, one of the things that he really went after is that when you're working inside an institution, a factory, or a school, and people feel like they're competing with each other, whether it's kids or teachers, that what you don't get to do is to really uh, leverage the collective intelligence of the group. And I just feel like that, that one of the things that we've set in motion through a scientific management model is such a focus on trying to run our systems based on numbers alone that we've really neglected the idea that as leaders that we're out for the good of the community and it's when everybody is successful, all teachers are successful, all kids in a school are really feeling a high level of success, that we're really going to turn around some of the bigger issues that people in this country are saying happens to be the, 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 the ills of public education. The reality is that I look at it, you know, and I, I heard the Secretary of Education say that in this next year that 80 plus percent of the, the schools in the United States would be labeled as failures, that if no child left behind stays in place in two years, 98 percent will be failures. That sounds like really bad news. I think on the other hand, the good news is that we don't have schools that are, are out there that are failures at that level. We all know that there are improvements that need to be made, but I don't think that trying to do that through silos, competition, visible numbers alone, and keeping people apart from each other in the work they're doing is what's going to help us get there. And I'd love to see some of the folks in the, uh, in the uh, chat room log in and, and respond to that. One of the things that I, I think is critical is the, the entire competitive theory that runs through everything. Um, you know, and President Obama and Secretary Duncan used the terms race to the top. And when I challenged them on this, saying that, you know, when, when you have a race, you inevitably have winners and losers. And um, 
and, and that is a basic problem. One of the things that you see, and I remember long ago in a, in a, a conference about community development, um, somebody describing the difference between a small town and a big city. And one of the ways in which they said small villages worked more effectively is when you had smaller populations and you had less of a of a, a technological base to operate, you needed the contributions of every person in the community. Sure, the person might be the town drunk, but they could also help you, you know, get your plumbing done if you could keep them sober for enough of the day, or they could do this or that. They could work through things. And um, surely this person might not be the smartest person in, in, in the village, but they found something very useful for them to do. Um, there, there was a, there's a range of uses and, and needs and supports that work through this. Um, and, but in, in big cities, in the scientifically managed thing, you can afford to throw people away. And so when you have races to the top, when you have competitive-based funding for schools, Michigan's governor just unveiled that today in, in big things, when you say that you're creating charter schools so that parents can pick the successful things, it means you're creating environments where many of the children are not successful. And when we do this in schools through the many things we do, from grading to honor rolls to academic awards to things like that, we're always, you know, creating losers. One of the things that I always stick with and that I always remember is a in my second grade classroom, so I was what, seven years old, but the the teacher had a bulletin board that basically had little fish with student names on it. The fish moved up the tank as you read books. The more books you read, the higher up in the tank you got. And of course, my fish ended up stuck at the bottom of the tank for the entire year. I still remember this um, decades, decades later. Um, and we do this to kids every day. We do it to teachers every day. Um, we have to, you know, we have to rethink how we lead so that we're not leaving large groups of our population behind. And I, I think that um, I, Leslie just brought up in the uh, chat room, Ira, that she thinks that we ought to really work to see kids solving real life problems and not being so focused or on grades or even uh, looking at, at what it would look like if we eliminated grades. I think that's a really imp important uh, point because one of the things, and I, I certainly would love to hear from some folks in the chat room, that I think that grades become a mechanism for sorting and selecting and that as soon as we start sorting and selecting, one of the things that we do is to really opt some kids out of learning the things that we think are really important for kids to learn. And that happens in a lot of different ways. But I think that the critical issue is that um, we define school as a place where our job is not to ensure that everybody learns, but to simply ensure that everybody teaches. Well, and I've been lucky enough in my life to go to a couple of things, both a high school and a, a, a college with, without grades. And one of the things that's wondrous about that is that 
it becomes about the project and the work you're doing and the hierarchy of students that usually occurs in schools disappears in, in those cases. Um, and, and these were very successful educational institutions. So I know I have evidence that, that this kind of grading doesn't work, that honoring people for what they do is a much stronger incentive because it, it allows sort of everyone to succeed. So if you have a grading system, it doesn't matter. For instance, when I teach at Michigan State, it's almost impossible in my classes to get anything below a 3-5, you know, with four point being the top, and those are the two grade choices, and most people get a four point. And I say that at the beginning, and I go through it, and yet people still worry about it because the university will get very upset if I give everybody the same thing in a 70-person class. Um, so we create barriers the minute we introduce that ranking of, of students. And when we create ranking of teachers in the same way, we obviously, you know, do the same thing. I mean, one of the things that I always like to focus on is I have a real good friend, a professor at Michigan State, who says the hidden curriculum of schools is never hidden. It is actually the only curriculum. It is the way you rank and sort people. It is the way you measure people that is the curriculum of the school. That's what people respond to. The rest is um, the rest is just trivial facts and things around it in most schools. But what, what matters to people, what they learn, is the environment you create. Absolutely, and, and uh, you kind of zipped past that, that um, the, the hierarchy slide in terms of leadership because I look at that from, a, from the level of, of being a person at, at the superintendency and level and, and think about the fact that one of the things that we've done, and I certainly was very aware of this as a young teacher, is that we attach status to what uh, the, the, the position happens to be inside the educational hierarchy and that rather than looking at knowledge of particular issues or situations or uh, 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 considerations that we need to have in education, we look at who in the hierarchy has the positional power, um, and that's who oftentimes gets to make the decision. The reality is that if you go out and take a look at an organization that has, we've got, uh, you know, 20-some hundred um, employees, I can find teachers that perhaps in some cases have as much knowledge, if not more knowledge, than perhaps some of the more senior members of the, uh, of the administrative team. And yet, one of the things that we do by structuring that hierarchy, it's almost as if we send the message that um, what you know is far less important than the position you hold. I really think when I go back and take a look at um, maybe what you would label, Ira, as the pre-Gutenberg period of time, that, um, that the reality is if you go back to um, villages, tribes, whatever, that in the, the, the very, very old days, that it was what people know, knew and could do that defined sometimes the, the level of power that they had inside um, the community. Um, in the, and in, it shifted around based upon the, the situation. We don't do that. We tend to line it up 
based upon where do you sit in that hierarchy. So as superintendent, you have far more power um, over the organization than you would at any other point up and down that line. That um, I think is um, something that we really should be thinking about is how do we level that playing field so that more people can come to the table with what they know and understand about situations and be able to really leverage all of that intellect together to make sure we're making good decisions. So, you know, what is it that leaders do to break down that hierarchy is a great question. Well, and because what's so important about that is how it filters down. And Jason asked in the chat room, he, he said um, that we have, you know, he has students, more often boys than girls, who feel that what they are good at is not valued at all by the school. And I have a favorite uh, thing from an um, Australian educator friend of mine who, who once said on Twitter, you know, how do I say to parents, your son is doing really well at everything that the school doesn't consider important? <laughs> um, you know, he's smiling, he's interacting with his peers, he's, he's functioning, he's contributing sort of knowledge in a back channel kind of way, and, and none of that is valued at all. And of course, when we, we start by not valuing that in our teaching staff, in the, in the parents, in everybody in our learning community, that of course filters down to the students that only certain things are valued. I always ask people who work in schools that have honor rolls, what goes into putting someone on an honor roll? Why isn't it everything? Um, you know, and, and my example as, as somebody who really struggled with reading in school um, is, you know, I would, say to, I would say to some people, you know how clumsy you felt in your gym class? Well, that's the way I felt many more hours of the day. So that what we do is we rank people. Um, we rank people in the organization in a way that, just as Pam said, limits their potential for contributing to us so, so their knowledge is discounted or it, it simply isn't listened to. And when that happens a couple of times, people stop contributing, they stop trying. And the same thing happens to students in the classroom. And we have to change this from the very start. Leadership does not, should not mean either control of everything or power over everything or all-knowing. Um, those things are not leadership. Leadership is learning to empower people to find, to go on their own and contribute what they know so that as a community, our collective intelligence, our community cognition is the best it can be. Um, and it, this is sort of, you know, the critical thing. If your principal's office, your superintendent's office, looks like the door in this slide, there's a problem. Because if we talk about natural leadership in the way we mean it, one of the things in this slide that, um, and, and I, I think this is important, that these five people, um, and I could say if I wanted to do this, you know, extra credit to the first person to name them. Um, but none of these people were born into leadership positions. None of these people rose through normal systems. What they all have in common is that they filled a particular need within their community at that moment in time, and thus they rose to the top in their situations. Um, and 
and that's a, a really vital thing to you know to think about is how people move through your organization, um, how they how they bring knowledge to the table, their skills to the table over time. And so, you know, and I'm, we're not going to talk slides much in this, but, you know, the question then becomes what the leaders do. If you measure, what do you measure? Because whatever you measure will be the most important thing in your school. <laughs> do you inspire? Do you bring people, you know, to be their best all the time? Do you direct people or do you support them in their own directions? Do you make rules or do you make things possible? And I would um, say that, that I also think that one of the things that you have to really be able to talk about is if you go back to the, the whole basics of scientific management, which started 100 years ago, about this time I think, Ira, that it was all about looking at kids as products, in fact, Coverly, who Ira knows quite a bit more about than I do, really believed that schools should be run as business by business people. He believed that um, everything should be governed and managed by what we might call smart goals today. He uh, believed uh, very specifically should be um, focused on in such a way that it was always about results that were measurable. Um, that he was very much into seeing schools run just like factories were, were beginning to be run um, during that period of time. And what concerns me is that we've tried to repeat that model over and over again in response to any point in the time between then and now where people have felt like that schools were not working very well. And the reality is that, that I think that the system is what I would label as being the failure, not the people, either the kids or the teachers or the principals that are working inside the system. Um, we just keep trying to replicate something that hasn't worked very well for us. Um, it's interesting because uh, the 9-11 Commission, when they took apart what about government they felt had led to 9-11, and I certainly don't want to characterize this as being a 9-11 situation with our schools today, but they looked at four areas that I think are pretty critical. They said that there were failures of management, of capacity, of policy, and of imagination. And they talked about, you know, the, the government working in silos. They talked about people that had knowledge, um, that had the capacity to perhaps inform what was going on, were kind of ignored inside the system. Um, they talked about the fact that we just couldn't imagine that, that the world was no longer a Cold War world, and so our policies were built around that. I think in some ways that we have to take a look at those same kinds of failures inside our own system, policy, capacity, management, and, uh, and imagination, and think about if those are failures of our system, what do we replace them with? And so that's really what we've been trying to work on a little bit together, um, whether it's looking at learning spaces, whether it's looking at teaching, whether it's looking at the learning work that kids are doing or how the technologies are used, and realizing that you can't separate those things out from each other that you've got to look at it as a system of ways that we need to change and that we can't do it by using the traditions of schools, whether it's traditional professional development, whether it's uh, traditional leadership hierarchies, whether it's traditional sorting and selecting or schedules, that we've really got to take that apart and figure out what do we do that really starts to move us away from traditions that are part of a, what some people might label as a failed system. Well, you know, one of the things that's important, to, you know, to follow along this is that the scientific system 
continuously cut down a number of things that were measured. Um, and they said they were doing this specifically. Um, they, they stopped looking at the kind of um, natural sort of leadership kind of thing you'd see among kids. They stopped looking at, you know, different kinds of learning that were outside the sort of five critical areas that were defined as academic subjects. Um, they, they stopped looking at um, people's normal progress as they learned and started associating that with age-based norms. Um, and this was, this was a battle throughout the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, usually between educators who argued very firmly that teachers knew their students. You didn't have to do standardized tests to do this. In fact, American educators were quite sure of this, and many British uh, observers commented that American schools were better than British schools because British schools had already begun by 1900 to teach to the test, and American schools really didn't do that yet. Um, there, there was a, a in the, if you go back further to the one-room schoolhouse from which you know education began then much was done in terms of peer teaching and people had to depend on the community to help you know educate in different ways all of that went by the wayside with the coverly system and it's not really his but he was the one who codified it you know while he was a headed this Stanford College of Education, um, the concept that schools were factories producing products, which is what you still hear today. And if you do that, you're, you're, if you believe that, then your education is guaranteed to throw a high number of people uh, of students away. That's always been the process. The reason we have age-based grades in schools is because the goal of schooling, and I think Woodrow Wilson said this most explicitly, was to fail 80% of students. And you failed about 10% of students every year, first through eighth grade, and you got down to the 20% who went to high school at that point. That is the goal of grade level expectations. It is the goal of standardized testing. It is the goal of everything. And if that's, um, if that's the structure that, that's out there, then you're going to rank your teachers as industrial workers. That is, you know, it's no different than if you're working on the line at, you know, the old GM factories in Flint, Michigan. Um, you're going to be ranked on how many cars you produce that, you know, fall off the end of the line, not how you lift products up, you lift students up and make things better. So the very basis of the you know, the scientific management. And remember that we use, just as, as a way of driving this home, when we do statistical analysis of our educational statistics, of our testing results, we use what's called the t-test. And the t-test was designed by a chemist working for Guinness to assure that every batch of beer was exactly the same. That's our standard, and if that's our standard, it affects how we rank students, and it clearly affects how we rank teachers. I want to pop over, um, Ira, we just heard um, from one of the folks in the, the piece that was asking where does technology fit into all this, and I think it's an interesting question because, you know, one of the things that I hear people say sometimes is, you know, that, that it's not about the technology, 
when we're talking about some of the critical issues that we're putting on the table. The question was just asked, where does technology fit into this? Um, one of the things that, that I had a, a really interesting experience uh, in the last week that um, we have a school that um, is a school that, that has struggled a bit uh, with uh, um, changing demographics, has a much higher English as a second language population now than it did five years ago, certainly has its load of at-risk kids as a lot of uh, schools that, that feed off of sort of urban in environments do, um, had an engineering fair. Now our state SOL standardized high stakes test start in two weeks and um, just last week they had a major engineering fair which is an exposition of work that kids have been doing all year long with engineering. What was interesting is that one, that this is a school that has said that this work is so important that we're not going to subsume it to the test taking curriculum and plan to do engineering after the SOL test end. They've been working on it all year long. In fact, they believe that their kids are stronger in every one of the disciplines, the content areas that are tested on the SOLs as a result of engaging in the work of, of designing, creating, building, researching, uh, writing, um, presenting, all the things that go along with, with their engineering work. But what I thought was interesting is aside from the fact that they're willing to step out there and take the risk to spend their year working on real life, real world problem solving as an integral part of the curriculum, um, and then spend the two weeks before the SOL test doing more of the, the test preppy kinds of things because they know that it's important for their kids to do well. They're going to make sure that they um, understand the formats and so forth and so on. But I also think what was really important from a technology standpoint is that a lot of times people define technology as being the new tools that are in their hands, computers, laptops, uh, netbooks, mobile devices, um, interactive whiteboards, etc. The reality is, Ira, I know you talk about that um, That uh, technology is anything that you use that's a tool that helps you accomplish something that you want to accomplish. What was fascinating walking around the engineering fair is that there were projects that were made out of very old technologies. There were projects that used new technologies like um, a digital fabrication lab. The reality is that Technology is very much a part of the kids' lives. It always has been, going back to probably the beginning of, of time when people were learning. So I don't think that you can separate it out. I think you've got to look at it as part and parcel of the work we're doing. I think what's most important is you can't separate anything out and focus on it in isolation and expect to really change the game. If you send a teacher to a workshop and expect them to come back to a classroom that's set up to look like a classroom of 25 years ago, it's kind of hard to expect them to do real-world authentic problem solving. So I think we've got to change learning spaces, teaching, the learning work kids are doing, and how we use the technologies all simultaneously. And we can't do it in traditional ways. Well, you know, we can't. And in the, in the chat, there's this discussion of technology and does it solve every problem? And of course, nothing solves every problem. But I, my view of technology is this, is just as Pam said, technologies are tools and humans are above all defined as tool users and tool creators and tool adapters. There are lots of animals that use tools. You know, I can watch bonobos and chimpanzees, you know, dip sticks into termite mounds and, and suck the stuff off. I can watch sea lions use rocks to crack open shells. I can see lots of tool use in the animal kingdom, but what, what makes humans different is that tools dominate 
our existence in every way. Um, we, we refer to our history by our tools. We talk about the Stone Age and the Iron Age and the Bronze Age, the Age of Steam. We, we, we talk about these things because that's how important they are. Without tools, humans are a long, long way from the top of the food chain, as anyone who's been watching the Eagles in Iowa should be reminded of all the time. You know, you know humans were, were, uh, were feed for, for better hunters before, before we developed uh, tools. And so tools are a critical part of our lives. And, and the, the slide that's up at the moment is augmented reality. It's something that runs on... Um, my Android phone now runs on all sorts of phones all over the place. It's the kind of way that people can walk around the city and learn things. And with a group of people, we've been playing with the idea that you'll be able to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge in New York, and using your phone, you'll be able to see the stresses on the structure if you want, or poetry written about the bridge, or photographs and artwork created from the bridge. Um, so in other words, we're shattering the boundaries of, uh, between formal and informal education through these devices. In addition, as you know, people have said in the chat room, you go into classrooms and kids all over the place, if they don't have them now, they surely will in three years, will almost all have these devices that you know, can access information in every library in the world, can connect them to any person on the, on the planet that they want to. Um, you know, and, and these are a basic part of our existence at the moment. But Pam's right. What I see often is I see workshops in technology and then teachers returning to schools where technology isn't, isn't just offered, it's actively blocked by people. People so afraid of the downside of technology that they don't, they are unwilling to let any of it happen. Because there might be a plane crash, we stop the Wright brothers cold kind of thing. Um, and we as humans need to be better than that. And as leaders, we need to be better than that. We have to, um, uh, we have to bring, bring these technologies in, and we have to let people use them, even if it's messy, even if it's sloppy, but we have to also give our staffs time to play and experience and try and practice with things. Um, tech doesn't solve all human problems. It never has. There are many problems from 10,000 years ago that still exist today. But the fact is that without technology, we'd be in a, in a very big difference. And just, you know, last little thing on this thing I have, an 1841 book in which, um, you know, the author has to argue for using the chalkboard in classrooms because teachers are resisting it as a strange new technology that takes away from the book. Um, and he also has to fight to get students to have individual slates in their hands because people say that if you give students these expensive things, they'll break them. It's um, it, it's it's a never-ending point. A lot of interesting chat going on around uh, filters and and personal devices and and how different communities react and respond around that. Um, 
I, I think that, that one of the things that, that's really critical, and I, I do want to hit the professional development piece a little bit, because I think that's one of the most critical things that, that's uh, a, a real issue for us, is that I don't think there are many educators that you talk to who would say that the traditional development modes that we've used, whether it's workshops, whether it's conferences, keynotes, are really good um, uh, avenues for teachers to be able to either A, feel like that, that they got enough from the experience that they can actually go back and use what they have learned, or two, um, feel like that, that they've got the time to really build out the skill sets that perhaps that they would like to be able to work on. Um, it strikes me that one of the things that we've really got to do is to take a look at how we shift the way we think about professional development. Um, obviously, uh, some of those structures are ones that are, are so embedded it's going to be really difficult to make a shift in, in some areas. But um, one of the things that, that we've been finding and other people that I've talked to that have been talking about this similarly really see job embedded development as needing to happen as close to the, the real work that teachers engage in as possible. So one of the things that Ira and I have been doing this year, and as we have uh, spent time in schools, he's some in Michigan as well as here, is actually taking the time to just sit with teachers as they're doing the work of planning, as they're doing the work of thinking about how they want to make shifts in their classrooms, and focusing on it in the moment versus doing it as a workshop or uh, expecting it to happen through some other format that is very much removed from the daily work, the real work that teachers do. And so I think that that's one of the things that's kind of a go with with this move to a more natural leadership model that involves teachers as leaders in that, that actually trust that teachers, given the opportunity to make more incremental shifts, um, will do that pretty quickly and agilely, that, that it's not something that needs to take three years to affect some of the changes that you would expect. Here's an example of one that occurred within 24 hours after us talking with a, a, a media center specialist. Looks pretty simplistic on the surface, and I'll let Ira talk about this a little bit. In reality, this librarian will tell you that, that this change that she made didn't just change what occurred in the space outside the library, but also began to change things within 24 hours inside the library. Well, this, this is a classic example, and, it, and it's, it's thinking of leadership as on-the-ground collaboration with people, and leaders being one of the, the most important things that I do if, if I'm in any sort of considered to be in any leadership role is to try to bring new eyes to, to what people see. Pam and I walked into this school, and there was this enormous um, lobby area outside the offices and the media center. And they referred to it as sort of like Grand Central. They said people, kids just ran through it. It was, um, it was incredibly noisy, incredibly chaotic. And I, I looked around with, um, with the librarian, and I said she had already established that she had way too many tables and stuff in her library. And I said, could we put a couple of tables outside the door of the library? That was the first thing. And, and maybe kids could um, read at them or work at them or do something or display things on them, whatever. And then I looked around, and um, across the corridor were a couple of benches outside of offices that looked like the kind of sort of penalty boxes that kids sit in waiting to get disciplined. And I said, what if we grab those and put those in the center of the space? 
Um, and just to break up the space and to make it part of the library. I tend to say that if our schools are academical villages, as, as uh, Jefferson said, then our libraries are both the Central Park and the downtown, and we have to, those are the most important thing. So part of my goal is to bring the library out into the, out into the school itself in a way that makes things work. Um, she moved the benches the next day and, and went to, you know, some discount store and got some fake plants and put those out too. Immediately kids started going out and using that, which changed the whole structure of the library, created a more free-form thing. Teachers then responded by bringing different grades of kids together to read to each other in this big space. They sat under tables, on benches, on the floor, sprawled out across it. And suddenly what was a barren sort of circulation space in a school became the central park of the learning community. Um, it makes a difference. It, it brings learning out of the shadows. We don't do it in locked doors anymore. We can do it in public with people around and sharing things. We're also preparing our students to learn the art of choice in, in learning environments, which they'll all have to do in the workplaces that are appearing today. So I, I think that, you know, but this would only happen, this couldn't happen from uh, Pam sending out a memo that people should, you know, create reading spaces in, in the schools. This has to come from being on the ground with the teachers in the space, listening to them, and then, and then helping them find the logical solutions to their problems. Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking at uh, the time that we still have on the deck and wondering if there are any questions from the audience that, uh, Allison, you might want to see if anybody's got something they want to pop in and either ask um, on the back channel for us or whether um, they might want to kick it to us over the, the microphone. Um, but I do think that, that what Ira is showing right now is one of the more fascinating stories of what happens when teachers um, feel that they have um, the, the permission, the opportunity um, to be as imaginative as possible, going back to that, the four failures of the system. One is, do we really let our teachers and our kids imagine what could be? And uh, this is kind of a crazy story about this one picture where uh, the teacher was thinking about trying to figure out how to put whiteboard space on each kid's uh, desk or table. And Ira walked in and said, gee, you know, why would you do that? You've got plenty of white board space. It's called your floor. And in this elementary school, the uh, principal was pretty cool after testing out uh, some of the, uh, the marker uh, potential to, to damage the floor to say, hey, yeah, let's go for it. And this became a, a blog post by this teacher, but also a really great story that, that Ira likes to tell. Well, what was, what was greatest about this was the way the kids took charge of this. So what you're watching here is that the teacher had had the kids talking about what community meant. And um, so he had the students in groups of three or four um, start to draw, sort of map out what they thought a community looked at. And they all spread out across the room, did this in different places. And um, one of the things the kids then said was, 
the, the students, not the teachers, said, we have to build roads to connect these schools. Um, and so they started building roads to connect them. And at probably the, the best moment in the day, two groups drawing on the floor backed into each other and actually got into a land use argument over whose land it was, um, which the other students then had to moderate <laughs> and, and sort of solve, solve the problem. So it became a lesson of sort of remarkable complexity because everyone was freed. Um, of the of the normal constraints we do, and the kids were, you know, one of the things is, and we we ignore this with kids of every age, is the kinesthetic power uh, of kids moving and working with their bodies as they learn and do things. And in this case, the kids, Michael now, this third grade teacher, does. I mean, the kids do math problems on the floor. They they draw explorers on the floor. They do whatever they want, but they also work with Apple laptops, and they work with iPods, and they work with um, all sorts of different things, and paper, they draw on their desks, whatever it is they do um, to make themselves comfortable in this setting. And, and they're right. There's no way to measure with a multiple choice test the power of what's happening here. But I'll tell you something, and I've learned this through observing a lot of schools. These kids will do fine on multiple choice tests. If you let kids learn, that won't be the problem. And, and I let me also just, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say that, that one of the things that, that is absolutely true about classrooms like this, whether it's in uh, um, a, a third grade classroom or whether it's in a tenth grade classroom, and, and we can go to places all over this school district and other places all over the country where kids are learning in really powerful ways in classrooms that don't look like desk in rows, don't look like test prep curriculum, and actually are kids that you would consider to be highly at risk in terms of the factors that they bring into the classroom. Um, and that, that, that's a choice for us as to whether we choose to go down that more scientifically managed, visible numbers alone, test prep focused um, schooling, or whether we make other choices. The unfortunate thing is that oftentimes teachers are at the mercy of leaders who see it differently. So one of the things that, that you know, we've been really trying to do is to spend time talking with people that do have the, the capability, the power to make shifts in the way that they uh, uh, implement the practice of leadership and uh, to get them to really consider some of the choices that they're making. It's um, one of the things that Thomas Lasek, who's the one who said, you know, his students were doing better at everything the school didn't care about from Perth, Australia, um, just said is, you know, is one of the things that, that has to go with this as a leadership model, a professional development model, is openness and transparency. Um, I've been working with a, a wonderful superintendent here in Western Michigan, um, Dave Britton, who is the superintendent of the, uh, it turns out, the most impoverished district in the state. But they built, with some of their federal at-risk money uh, last year, they built a sixth grade building that's completely transparent. Um, Basically, you see from classroom to classroom, you see from classroom to to the open general space, you see from classroom to outside. 
everything is, is open and clear. It's sort of like working in a glass box. But what teachers do is they see what's going on and what's working in different places, and kids see it as well. It's, it's much less distracting than you can imagine. And, and um, uh, I go back to a, a great paper written by an associate of mine about um, uh, the idea of gays and, and Marie Montessori's classroom in the middle of the World's Fair in San Francisco, um, where the kids were fine if the, if the attention is, is, is there and, and the work is there. Uh, but we have to make this open. And one of the things I talk a lot about is, you know, keeping classroom doors open as a start, not covering up windows of, of things. But the next thing is teachers need to see each other teach. Um, when I first began working in K-12 education, I was stunned by the isolation. Um, I've never seen more isolated people before than teachers. They're locked away in their rooms. Um, uh, they don't get to work with, you know, a wide variety of, of other adults. We have to create those opportunities um, um, for teachers to see each other, to share their work, to, to trade classrooms, to team teach together, to do whatever. We, Pam and I, have done a lot of rounds in schools where we've grab the group of teachers, sometimes with students along, and walk through classrooms to see what they were like. Um, and um, and we, we have to get that going, because without that, we're, we're, um, uh, we're really kind of stuck. Um, we'll, progress will happen in little fits and starts. And as Pam always says, if we don't start sharing these practices, what kids get is potluck. They either get the great classroom or they don't get the great classroom. Um, they get the great teacher or they don't get the great teacher. And we should be better than that. You must go back to that slide before because that one is one of the more interesting things that occurred. Um, this is a, a, a window that looks from a library out into a hallway. And after Ira came in and did what um, some people describe as that Ira is like a, 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 a bungee jump, that he'll take you all the way down to the river, and then the bungee cord kind of comes back to some level. And you go, OK, this is where I can kind of live. But he threw out the idea that uh, perhaps that, that you know every wall is a teaching wall, including windows. And this librarian in this school decided to, to take the risk to figure that out. And kids started using the windows as a tool for uh, Basically, uh, doing things that they were uh, working on in terms of some research projects. This one happened to be on origami. And um, what was fascinating about it is that it actually spawned another research project as kids were walking by and looking at the reverse writing that, of course, was on the outside of the window. Um, they started trying to figure out what's the story on that, ended up uh, researching Leonardo da Vinci as a result of it, who happened to be able to write uh, uh, reverse writing uh, pretty proficiently, among other things that he was good at. Um, one of the things that I think is really critical about the role of the leader, and it's one of the things that, that we, as we work together and start to really expand this into more than just a, a night chat, is a focus on what do leaders do that really goes after one of the things that, that um, Again, Deming said about what great organizations do. And he talked about you know, that you don't manage your organization by visible numbers alone. Obviously, if you've looked at these slides tonight that come from classrooms in a variety of different places, 
what you will see are people who are engaging in a quality of work that can't be represented in a numeric dashboard or a reported out to the state in terms of, of kids' performance on some of the kinds of things that you see kids doing. But what I think is one of the most important things that, that we have to be able to drive out of our workplaces is the concept of fear and that the hierarchy creates a fear of the leadership. And even in the, the places that I consider to be sometimes the best of places, that always sits in the back of people's mind that live in a hierarchical world is what happens if I let the kids write on the windows? What happens if I let the kids write on the floors? What happens if I let kids use their, their phones in class? What happens if? You can go through a lot of those. The reality is that we've got to start taking that on. And it's one of the reasons why we believe that pitching some of this work to leaders will open the door. And I am using leaders in an administrative uh, way right now, despite the fact that, that I think that kids are leaders, teachers are leaders, uh, people that teaching assistants can be leaders. Anybody can be a leader, depending on the situation and what they know. But that if we don't get our administrative leaders to start to take on some of these big critical issues, that have become very much a part of who we are as a scientifically managed system of education in the United States, that we're going to continue to just build a system that ensures that some kids don't graduate, that some teachers don't ever become successful at the job that they really want to do, believe that they are called to do as educators, because we haven't built the supports in a way that really allow them to do that. I think that's really critical. I look at this and I look at kids uh, that are in um, every, I mean, you see kids in every which way but loose in terms of the way that they are choosing to be present in schools. They're on floors, they're in chairs, they're under tables. The reality is that these kids are all learning, but they're not in rows and desks. And it's really important as I sort of look at this, this is the last picture in this group, um, uh, to, to know that this means not just students but teachers as well. When I see typical professional development, I see the kind of teaching we wouldn't want for any of our children. Um, I see undifferentiated, um, non-universal, same for all, lecture kind of stuff, even when it's most well-meaning. Um, what I love about this picture is here's, here's a, a boy sitting by a bench but not on it. Um, he has a pencil next to him, but he's not. Um, uh, but he's not using that. He's got a mouse plugged into his computer, but he's not using that. <laughs> um, but he's completely 100% absorbed in what he's doing, despite the fact that there's motion around him and other students and all sorts of things going on. He's in a corridor. This is counter to. Um, to all the sort of rules of the classroom that, that we, that we uh, establish. And it, it's counter to all the things that we expect when we expect teachers to be learning themselves. I know that, you know, if I go to, you know, teacher education institutions like the one that I teach on, most classrooms look mighty traditional. Um, I know the most grading looks mighty traditional. Uh, and, and, if I go to professional development things, I go to conferences. I, the last little conference I was at, walked into a room with 
rows of like 90 chairs uh, facing a, a teaching wall and I said nothing will ever change unless we stop meeting like this. Um, we, we have to change, we have to model the change from the top down, from the top as it exists now, if we are going to change what the top means. And, and Pam's things of thinking of learning is happening around caves, campfires, and watering holes, those basic natural places where humans gather is, is, I, is I think a really, really you know, critical component of this. Um, yes, as Tuna Guy says here, which is a great name, you know, um, engagement versus compliance. If, if all we're trying to do is train compliant workers, which is what our system was designed to do, then we keep doing what we're doing. But I'll tell you something, and I know we're going a little bit over here. I have a son now who's 25 years old, works for Mozilla. Um, you know, he spent a year working for them in, in an office with no real assigned desks and people wandering around in a pool table and an Xbox 360 on a 26-foot screen and, and an open bar all day long and all the food in the world. Um, but he decided that while he liked that, he'd really rather live in New York, so now he works from home and then manages from an apartment in Brooklyn. Um, and he has to build that whole world himself. All of our people will for the real jobs we want our kids to have. So with that said, let me turn it back to Allison. Thank you all for coming and listening. Um, uh, and please, if you can, there's a link up there. And Allison, hopefully she'll post the link in the chat box too. Um, we'll be trying to workshop a bunch of this out in Colorado in June. Allison? A great um, talk. Thank you so much, Ira and Pam. Um, I think you probably have are teaching to the choir here. We'd love to have you all join us in Colorado for our Thai Leadership Conference. We have a specific Leadership Day on June 23rd as part of that conference, and I just posted um, the link to that. If you'd like to sign up, you can come for the day or you can come for the whole four-day conference. Either way, um, but there'll be more of this invigorating conversation, and I think you have some wonderful ideas, Pam and Ira. We really appreciate you taking time to join us tonight, and thank you for everyone who attended. I appreciate you coming. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. Thanks for coming, and go. You're, you're the people doing it in the classroom, so I appreciate that.